exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Um, if you were at a Christmas Eve service, you heard the story from Luke chapter 1 when the angels announced to Mary that God had chosen this young woman to be the mother of God. And this morning, we move from the announcement of Jesus' birth to the famous story itself. Now, this is a story you probably heard hundreds of times, and I know for some of you, you know the story so well that you do not remember the first time that you heard it. And I know it can become dull in our ears and so familiar to us that, we, that we've heard it a million times and we tend to, to tune the story out. But I just want us to all be careful not to let it be so familiar that we miss out on the blessings of this glorious story. So I want us to pray before we dive into Luke 2 that God would reawaken our hearts to the glorious story that we find here. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, we've been to many Christmas services. We have heard these scriptures about the birth of Jesus many times, but we beg you, don't allow our hearts to become dull. Give us the ability to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we can find eternal life and everlasting joy in these verses. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The miracle of Christmas is what makes Christianity different from every other religion. I've shared this story before, but let me share it again. Pastor David Platt once wrote uh, in this small little book called Radical. He shared the story and he said, I remember sitting outside a Buddhist temple in Indonesia. Men and women filled the elaborate, colorful temple grounds where they daily performed their religious rituals. Meanwhile, I was engaged in a conversation with a Buddhist leader and a Muslim leader in this particular community. They were discussing how all religions were fundamentally the same and only superficially different. We may have different views about small issues, one of them said, but when it comes down to the essential issues, each of our religions is the same. I listened for a while and they asked me what I thought and I said, it sounds as though both of you picture God, or whatever you call God, at the top of a mountain. It seems as if you believe that we are all at the bottom of the mountain and I may take one route up the mountain and you may take another, and in the end we all will end up in the same place. They smiled as I spoke and happily they replied, exactly, you understand. And then I leaned in and said, now let me ask you a question. What would you think if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain actually came down to where we are? What would you think if I told you that God doesn't wait for people to find their way to him, but instead comes to us? And they thought for a moment and then responded, well, that would be great. I replied, let me introduce you to Jesus. And Pastor David Platt's story is a beautiful reminder of why we celebrate Christmas. We don't celebrate Christmas because Jesus was a good teacher who inspired us. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is an inspiring story that should make you want to treat other people better. But that's not what this story is. He wasn't just a good teacher or a good moral philosopher or even a prophet who taught us how to earn our way to heaven. We celebrate Christmas because Jesus came down to earn heaven for us. It's actually impossible for you to earn your way to heaven. If we understand Christianity to be a list of rules we need to follow to get to heaven, we will never understand what Christianity is about. As long as you think that salvation is about you working your way to God, you will find yourself in just another meaningless religion that is just like every other religion. The beauty of Christmas is that we're not just 
good people who need to get better. We're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And I know that's offensive to the world and even some of us here. I remember I was even talking to a lady um, uh, a couple months back and really, really sweet person. She knew I was a pastor. And so as I was talking to her, uh, the subject of spiritual things come up. And, and I said, well, what do you think happens after someone dies? And she said, oh, yeah, heaven and hell, normal stuff. And I said, well, do you think you're good enough to get to heaven? Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm good enough. And I said, okay, well, have you heard of the Ten Commandments? And she said, oh, yes, I know the Ten Commandments. I've kept the Ten Commandments. I said, oh, really? And we started to go through the Ten Commandments one by one. And I asked her, have you ever told a lie? And she said, oh, yeah. How many lies? Oh, I can't even count the amount of lies. I said, okay. And we start going through the commandments one through one, as I usually do when I'm talking to people and trying to show them, actually, you need a Savior. And before I even finish, she interrupts me and she says, wait a second. I think you're trying to tell me that I'm a sinner. And I said, yeah, that's exactly, I'm a sinner too. We're all sinners. That is the point of Christianity. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners who need a savior. Without a savior, God will judge us for the commandments that we've broken. If salvation depends on us paying for our own sins or being good enough to get to heaven, there is no hope. But this is the hope of Christmas. God came down to pay for the crimes of sinners like you and I. And this morning, I want us to embrace the good news of Christmas. I want us to go back to the original story and see the glories of what Christ did so we can embrace that good news. Because in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, we're going to find three results of Christ's birth. Three results of Christ's birth. First, we'll find that Christ's birth resulted in Jesus' humiliation. We'll find that in verses 1 to 7. Secondly, we'll find that Christ's birth still, or, or Christ's birth resulted in Christ's exaltation. We'll find that in verses 8 through 14. And finally, we'll see that Christ's birth still results in our proclamation. We'll find that in verses 15 through 20. Christ's birth results in Jesus' humiliation and his exaltation and still results in our proclamation. But let's start with his humiliation. Look with me at verses 1 through 5. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and lineage of David, to be registered uh, with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And before we dive into the events of the story, there's one thing I just have to point out. Because in verse 2, there's a rich history that you and I may not know about. You see, for about a hundred years, liberal scholars looked at verse 2 in chapter 2 and said, this verse proves that the Bible is not true. Because uh, there's records that Quirinius was not governor during the time of Jesus' birth, but he actually became governor 20 years after he was born and reigned for another ten or so years. And so liberal scholars for, for about a century said Luke must have his facts mixed up. And clearly he didn't know what he was talking about when he wrote verse 2. And therefore you cannot trust the Bible. You can't believe it's inspired. And this was a troubling verse for many years for scholars until... We did some digging, and specifically there's some British guys that went down to the Middle East, and they did some digging, and they found some coins that had a picture of this guy named Quirinius, and on it it had some dates that dated earlier to the birth and the time of Jesus. You see, it actually was discovered that, that Quirinius 
either served two terms as governor with a break in between, or there were two different governors named Quirinius. There's evidence that was found later that verified that Luke actually did his research and what he wrote down was true. All this to say, we can trust our Bibles. This is not a story that starts a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This isn't once upon a time. These were real governors with a real ruler in a real place and time in history. We can trust our Bibles because this is a true story that will impact us even today. Amen? Amen. That's just the side note on verse 2. But if you go back to this story, it introduces Augustus and, and his kingship and his reign as Caesar. But this story is really a tell about two kings. The first king is the story of Caesar, Augustus, and Rome. There was a time in Rome when, when it, Rome was at the height of its power, had as much land as it would ever have, had as much riches as it would ever have. Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And you have to remember that Julius Caesar was assassinated and stabbed to death primarily because he saw himself as a divine king. I'm divine. I have the right to reign indefinitely. The Senate has no right over me. So they killed him. And after he was killed, his son took the throne, and Caesar Augustus was very careful not to make the same mistake of his father. He did not claim to be a divine, but he still claimed the title as son of the divine one, the son of God. But we know, of course, that the only true son of the divine was not this king in Rome, but a second king we read about in the manger. This second king rules over the king in Rome and has more power and authority than Augustus could have ever imagined. In fact, when Augustus issued the decree for everyone to return to their home cities for the census, Augustus was in reality obeying a decree that was issued much, much earlier. A decree God issued in eternity past. You ever wondered if the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, why did God call Mary, who was a Nazarene? How is this possible? Why is geographically this doesn't make sense? But in God's plan, he picks a Nazarene, and then he stirs up a king's heart to, to issue a census so that he moves people geographically great distances because it's all going according to his plan and his decree. This was the plan from the very beginning, that Jesus was to be born in the right place and at the right time and under the right circumstances. God wasn't waiting for just the right circumstances and said, oh, this is really convenient. Now I'm sending Jesus. No, he orchestrated all of human history so that Jesus would be born in the fullness of time. You go all the way back to the, the garden. When Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent in the garden, God promised that one day a descendant of Eve would be born who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse. As you read on in Genesis, God starts to reveal who this snake crusher eventually would be. Eventually, God calls a man named Abram, and he tells Abram that the snake crusher would come through him and his family. And as the story continues, God continues to point out this family is where the snake crusher is going to come from. This people, this reign. And at the end of Genesis, God tells us that the promised snake crusher is going to be a king from the tribe of Judah. And eventually a king named David comes from the tribe of Judah. And he's not the promised one, but God does tell David that one of his sons will be this promised one, this snake crusher, this Messiah. 
And that's why in Micah 5, 2 that we read in our Old Testament scripture, it says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. From man's perspective, it seems like God had failed Israel, like he failed David, because there was no one from David's line on the throne in Israel. It appears as if God had broken his promises, but really it was all going exactly according to plan. At the order of Caesar, Joseph and Mary travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that God could give the world the true son of David, the true snake crusher. We have two kings here and one is far greater than the other. What is beyond comprehension here is that even though this is the sovereign king of the universe who orchestrated this entire thing, he comes in a humble way. Look, look how he comes in verses 6 or 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Though Jesus was of royal blood, he inherits no earthly throne. Jesus created the heavens and the earth. He holds all things together by the power of his word. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. If Jesus had been born the son of Julius Caesar and inherited the whole Roman Empire, it still would have been a demotion. But Jesus did not pick to come out of the Roman Empire in that royal line. Instead, he comes in total poverty, total obscurity. Bethlehem is famous around the world today because of Jesus' birth, but at this time, it would have been charitable to call this place a village. Maybe 300 people in the town of Bethlehem. And we all know that during this time, there was no room for this traveling family, so they stay with the animals and they lay Jesus in a feeding trough. And this does not change when he's older. When, when Jesus is older, he's preaching at one point, he says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. As a minister on this earth, as he was going around and preaching, he had no home. He had to rely on the, the hospitality of strangers. He was practically homeless. He left the glories of heaven, and he humbled himself by taking on flesh and being poured into total poverty. St. Augustine said it this way, Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, the truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. End quote. From the beginning of his life to his death on the cross, Jesus' life was marked by utter humiliation. It was a humiliation he chose so that we might live. The whole reason Christ was humiliated and took on the form of a servant. The entire reason why Jesus was born into the likeness of men was so that he could go to the cross and die as a substitute for sinners. But this story is not only about Christ's humiliation. It's also about his exaltation. Look with me to verses 8 through 9. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Right after Jesus is wrapped in swaddling 
cloths and laid down in a manger. We find that the circumstances of Christ's birth are not total humiliation because outside of this village, an angel appears. And it's interesting that in this small town, God reveals this news not to priests or rulers, to scribes or Pharisees, but to shepherds. Back in this day, shepherds had terrible reputation. They were known as thieves and drunks. They were oddballs. They were weird. They were the outcasts in this society. But here, the angel appears to these men, and they are terrified. You see, angels have a reputation in the Bible that they do not have today. Today, when we think of angels, we think of a baby with wings and a harp. But in the Bible, when angels show up, they're there to kill and to make war. At one point, the Assyrians came to Israel, and they're, they're coming to make war with the nation of Israel. And so King Hezekiah prays to the Lord God. He says, Lord, save us from this outside threat. Don't let your name be put to shame. And so God sends one angel to defend Israel. And that night, that angel kills 180,000 soldiers. So when the, when the shepherds, they see this angel, their expectation is we're done for. God has seen the evil things that we've done. They, he knows our reputation and he's ready to take us out. But instead, this is what the angels tell the shepherds. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. I'll keep reading. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. The angel tells them, Do not be afraid. I bring you gospel. I bring you good news for all people. This is news for the rich and the poor. For the insiders and the outcasts, for the Jew and the Gentile, white and black, young and old. The Savior of all, the Son of David, the Snake Crusher, the Messiah, the Lord has been born in Bethlehem this day. And suddenly, an army of angels, you see that word host of angels? It's, that's an army of angels show up and they began to sing and praise God. Don't even give time for these men to respond. And what do they sing? They shout, glory to God in the highest. This is the first performance of angels we have heard on high. If you know that song, you'll know the chorus goes, in excelsis Deo. Glory, and you have the Gloria that has 17 syllables, and we go on and on. And that's a wonderful song, and I don't know about you, have you ever wondered what that, that phrase, in excelsis Deo, means? What's the Latin translation of verse 14? It's actually, when we sing that, we're singing, glory to God and the highest. It's a great song. The main reason we didn't sing it today or this season really is because I can't hit those notes, but it's a great, glorious song. But the angels praise Jesus for his humble arrival. You see, Christ was born so that he could be humiliated in his death on the cross, but he was also born so that he could be exalted. Through the person of Jesus, God was able to glorify him in a way that he had never done before. When it says glory to God in the highest, Jesus was the greatest manifestation, the greatest display of God's glory that the world had ever seen and will ever see. And so he's deserving of the, the worship, the love, the adoration that he gets here. 
In the life and death of Jesus, God showed off his justice, his mercy, his wisdom, his love, all of his attributes in a unique way that exalted Jesus. That's why Philippians 2 says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here with the shepherds, we get a preview of what the heavenly throne room looks like. Here we see Jesus being worshipped and praised for his humiliation. And one day, every single knee in the universe will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and will exalt him. Now that confession and that knee-bowing moment will either come in our lives right here, right now, or will come against our will in the life to come. We either confess him in this life willingly or we will confess him as Lord against our wills. But this fact remains, Jesus is Lord of all. And his birth resulted in his exaltation. But there is one final result. The birth of Jesus still results in our proclamation. Look with me to verses 15 through 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And they saw it, and they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherd told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The shepherds did not doubt for a moment the news the angels had told them. So they leave behind their sheep the entire reason they're there in the middle of the night in the countryside. And they go quickly to Bethlehem and they're not seeking Joseph. They're not seeking Mary. They're seeking this king. And they see their king, their Lord, their Messiah in his humble estate. And what does it cause them to do after? It leads them in verse 17 to tell everyone the the good news they had heard. They told everyone about their story. They didn't say, thank you for my fire insurance. I'm going back to the fields now. What a wonderful thing for me. They also did not just go back into their lives and start living as more upright, better shepherds. And, and people say, oh, what, what has changed you, oh, shepherds? They oh, I'm glad you noticed. Let me tell you about what happened. No, they didn't wait for people to notice their lives, which undoubtedly would have been changed by this experience. They went and told everyone. The good news of salvation had come. They were so affected by the news that it was only natural for them to tell anyone and everyone they knew. And in the words of J.C. Ryle, everyone who has received the grace of God and tasted that Christ is gracious ought to find words to testify of Christ to others. Where is our faith if we believe that souls around us are perishing and that Christ alone can save them and yet remain silent? Where is our love if we can see others going down to hell and yet say nothing to them about Christ and salvation? We may well doubt our own love of Christ if our hearts are never moved to speak of him. 
we may well doubt the safety of our own souls if we feel no concern about the souls of others. And if that's you, then there should be a reason to say, have I been radically changed by the grace of God? But the way that you receive the grace of God is now, let me earn it by telling others, no, receive it. Behold the babe in the manger that he has come to save his people from their sins. That he was humiliated so that you and I could be saved. And then he was exalted and he sits on the throne now and he's coming back again. Our job is not to make everyone a Christian, but our job as Christians is to be humble messengers like these poor shepherds. Because Christ's birth still results in our proclamation. And my prayer this morning is that we would embrace this good news of Christmas. Because in Luke 2, we found that Christ's birth results in Jesus' humiliation, exaltation, and our proclamation. So let me ask you, have you embraced the good news of Jesus? I know today the meaning of Christmas is so commercialized. It's all about what we can get and what we can buy. And there are other aspects of Christmas that are good but are not ultimate. Like, like I've seen in so many movies and I've heard even people talk about, oh, Christmas is the season of love or joy or peace or it's all about family. And all of those things are good things, but they're not ultimate things like the news of Jesus. None of them are good news like Jesus is good news. This news has changed the world and it can save your soul and change your life. So have you embraced this news? And for those who have heard this message a million times, has it grown cold for you? Or is it still affect you that though, like those shepherds, when you hear this news, you're ready to go out and tell it on the mountain and tell the whole world about your Savior? Has your heart gotten cold to this message? Or are you still motivated in that way? Well, I have three pastoral charges, three ways we can apply this news to our lives. First, Submit to Jesus as Lord. Submit to Jesus as Lord. He is Lord of the heavens and earth. He sits on his throne now. He is the ruler of all creation and his commands all men everywhere to repent. The command is simple. Trust in what Jesus has done. Turn from the things that you're trusting in. Turn from the evil you've done and trust alone in the Savior who came on Christmas Day. Was born that men no more may die. Submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Cast your whole self on Jesus and submit to him. The second pastoral charge is this. Imitate Jesus' humility. Imitate Jesus' humility. A servant is not above his master. None of us can out-humble Christ. None of us has more rights than Jesus. That he had the rights to sit on the throne and to just ignore us. He was under no obligation to come and save us. Every time someone spoke a poor word against him, everyone, every time someone did evil to him, he had every right in the world to, to judge them and to bring them under his condemnation. But even as he was on the cross and men shouted insults at him, he cried out, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. We are to imitate the humility that Christ displayed. Don't consider yourself better than anyone else, but, but hold every single person in this room as more valuable than yourselves in the way that, that Christ did. That's the attitude that we as a church are called to submit to as Christians. How do you disagree and how do you love those who are in the church who disagree with you politically? How do you deal with those in the church who sin against you greatly? You imitate the mind of Christ. Is that the most important thing is Christ and what he has done and we're supposed to imitate his attitude and his humility that he has displayed. 
That's how we have unity and love for one another as a church. Imitate Jesus' humility and look to the cross. And then final pastoral charge, proclaim the good news of Christmas. Proclaim the good news of Christmas. Tell others about what Jesus has done in coming to earth. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people who will never set foot in this church. I've tried desperately these past couple months and was was thankful to see that some people came to our Christmas Eve service and it was like, praise God, we got some people to come. And and I've been working my tail off to invite people, hey, come on, come on. And, And that can only ever do so much. There's thousands of people who will never come into the church, but who you have a personal relationship already, who you have a spot in their life, and you can tell them the good news. You can be like these poor shepherds who just simply said, this is the news I've heard. These probably weren't well-educated men. These probably weren't the best preachers of their day. But all they did was they carried the excitement and love, and they were changed by the grace of God, and they carried the news of Christmas to those in this town. And it started a domino effect that changed the world. I know it's not an easy thing to do. I know it's difficult. But listen, you don't have to be a master evangelist. You just need to have a heart that has been radically transformed by the grace of God. And if you had that, then just start by telling other people about the good news of Christmas. And so with all that being said, let this this truth reign in your heart and let the love for others overflow. But in all things, don't let the, the spirit and season of Christmas just be love just be peace, just be kindness to others, or just be family. Let the reason for the season be the sacrifice that Jesus made and exalt him every day with your lives. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.